Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello and welcome to the Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Mohamed Moti of Hospital Saint-Antoine and Sorbonne University in Paris, France, Maria Victoria Mateos of University Hospital of Salamanca in Spain, and Sagar Loniel of Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, US. This episode is part of a series of podcasts dedicated to the first Multiple Myeloma Hub Satellite Symposium, which was held virtually in May 2021. In this episode, our speakers will be having a roundtable discussion and concluding comments based on questions gathered from the audience about the theme of the symposium, Should Cure Be the Goal for Multiple Myeloma? Let's go to the roundtable discussion, and I'm going to uh, we do have some questions in the chat that I think we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, but I wanted to start off with a question. Do we think that the cure versus chronic disease model may be, may be differentially applicable based on genetics? Um, and so uh, I guess where I'm going with this is because the high risk tends to be the most proliferative, do we think that perhaps that might intrinsically be the most curative and the, the standard risk, which tends to be slower, may be the one that we just try and control with continuous therapy? I'm throwing that out for both of you guys to respond to. I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it to the ladies first. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, I was going to say that it's uh, difficult the question because in principle, the information we have is just the opposite because it's true that uh, when uh, we prescribe optimal combinations of therapy based on PI meets uh, corticosteroids, even we can add or not the anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies, the response rate in standard risk and high risk is quite similar and high risk patients are able to respond very well but the problem is the durability of the response. And today, high-risk patients usually lose the response earlier than expected. And this is the problem. If we can assume what you said, Sagar, patients with high risk are likely to be potentially cured, the optimal approach would be to try them to achieve a multi-negative, sustained over time, across the exposition to the plasma cells to different drugs with different mechanism of action in a sequential way. Because otherwise, I think that with the approaches we are doing right now, we know that most high-risk patients usually relapse earlier than expected. And from my point of view, if I have to plan a clinical trial for curing myeloma, not in smoldering, I will first go to standard risk, but maybe I am wrong. Professor Moti. Yeah, no, I, I think I share the same philosophy as Mary V. And in general, we always think and put all our efforts towards the high-risk patient, whereas it is more and more likely that the long-term survival uh, will be achieved in the so-called standard risk. And we see this in acute leukemia, for instance, acute mild leukemia is exactly uh, similar story there. Uh, also, I think uh, we didn't solve, in my opinion, the definition of cure and what we are looking for. But assuming you have a standard risk uh, uh, cytogenetics in a myeloma patient who is 75, and you are able to give an optimal therapy, and this patient would receive one line of therapy, whether it's a continuous therapy well tolerated and the patient 
is dying at age 83 or 84 of a cardiac problem or something else. Maybe we can argue this is not cure. We did not eradicate the plasma cell, the, pl the malignant stem cell. Uh, maybe we've given continuous therapy to achieve this. But at the end of the day, I guess this patient uh, has a relatively decent survival, similar to what you would expect in this population. So this is why I, I think it's about increasing the survival of people and maybe let them die of something else uh, other than myeloma. Yeah, so what matching, is your opinion, Sagar? So matching age-adjusted survival, yeah. So I, I think that, that that certainly is a, a reasonable benchmark. It raises the bar for younger patients with myeloma, right? <laughs> because uh, the age-adjusted survival is going to be quite different. I, I suspect that there are going to be genetic subsets that are more likely to be controlled and genetic subsets that are more likely to be cured. Um, uh, I'm, I'm curious to think about how we might do that. I, I you know, um, we may answer that question quicker in the high risk because they tend to relapse sooner. So if they do better, it's easier to show benefit in those patients. But I agree. I think it's going to end up being a combination uh, of approaches. So there is one question from the group here. What do you define as acceptable safety profile in smoldering and where do you set the bar? Um, I think that's a good question. Um, certainly in the ECOG trial, we had one death early on from a PE uh, in a patient who was on prophylaxis, but certainly it's, it's less than 1%, but one event in a patient who is asymptomatic is always, um, you know, is always a concern. I'm, I'm curious again what you all think. Yeah, this is extremely important because uh, we have to realize that today the standard of care for high-risk smothering is observation. So as soon as we plan whatever clinical trial, we have to consider the safety profile. In our Kiredex trial, we had the opportunity to collect the toxicity in the treatment and also in the observation arm. And definitely the tolerability with the Lendex in asymptomatic myeloma patient was better than the tolerability reported in the clinical trials conducted in relapse and refractory myeloma or newly diagnosed myeloma patients. So this is important. Patients are completely asymptomatic and they tolerate much more better the treatment. And in our study, while the hematological and the non-hematological toxicity, well, did exist, of course, but it was acceptable. And I can say that the incidence of a neutropenia grade 3-4 was 5%. Thrombopenia grade three, four, two percent, and from the non-hematological point of view, it was surprising to see how infections of any grade occurred in approximately one third of the patients. But in the control arm, patients who did not receive any treatment, they had also infections because definitely high risk smoldering percent and immunodepressed situation, and they are likely to present infections. So. I think that for us at the beginning, the major problem was the second primary malignancies because the trial started in 2007 when the warning about the second primary malignancies emerged. But fortunately, we've not seen many second primary malignancies. We did a, comparis a comparison between the treatment and the observation arm and according to the uh, drug exposition, well, it was uh, quite acceptable. No, uh, I, I, I think this is a, a difficult question and the issue of uh, safety uh, and toxicity in these 
usually in these patients we usually don't treat is even more important because obviously if you are treating an aggressive myeloma relapse you would accept although this is maybe not the most appropriate semantic but you would accept a certain level of toxicity and this is the case when you use these uh, uh, combinations in advanced stage however uh, when it comes to these asymptomatic patient i think uh, the level of acceptance is really low. And this is the reason, in my opinion, why despite the availability of at least two randomized phase three trial, uh, the approach of treating these patients is not becoming universal. I mean, I do appreciate in the United States, there are probably, uh, when I uh, listen to Vince, uh, uh, there are many community physicians and centers treating these patients but I'm not aware of such wide practice in Europe. And I believe this story is also a moving target because uh, it evolves with the available treatment options you are going to get. And when Marie V mentioned that uh, uh, RevDex trial was established like 15 years ago, 14 years ago, probably the story is gonna be different today because we have so many other options. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, um, uh, it, it is not unusual for us to see somebody now who started on Rev or RevDex for high risk smoldering uh, in our clinics. We probably see uh, a few a week that come in, and the and the and what we're struggling with is they're seeing a twenty five percent increase in the M protein and want to switch to myeloma therapy. And we're saying, no, 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 no. This is just an increase in the M protein. It's not symptomatic myeloma yet. So I think we even have to do some work on what does it mean to be a progressor on therapy in the high-risk smoldering setting? Um, because I think everybody goes back to the old default. And few remember that in Mari V's trial, it was definition was developing myeloma. In our trial, yeah. it was developing myeloma, but there are many small phase two studies that say 25% increase in the M protein is progression and, and are defining it that way. So it, it is becoming a challenge. Yeah, definitely. And uh, while this opens the door to another important uh, question I would like to address with you, in uh, myeloma, but also in a high-risk smoldering, and is it the early intervention? We are potentially discussing about the cure, and we agree that the cure is disease-free, treatment-free. In order to maintain the patient's disease-free, do you see a opportunity to early treat patients at the moment of the relapse, and even in the high-risk smoldering myeloma, just when the MRD becomes positive or something like that, before waiting to have a clinical disease, active disease? Yeah. So this. Um, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna um, question the premise of your question, um, which is that when we treat a smoldering patient, our goal is cure. Um, I think when you're using less intensive interventions that are more immune mediated, the goal is prevention. Um, and uh, can you live with a low level M protein for a long time that never becomes anything at all? Right. So. I think the prevention aspect to me is the is the intent of the single agent lenalidomide and perhaps the Lendex. Your your current trial is really focused on answering the cure question, and and that is an important question. It's a testable hypothesis, and I think you're doing it. Um, we've had this discussion actually in ECOG 
And uh, Jonathan Kaufman uh, and Vincent and Shaji and I are designing a trial at relapse to ask biochemical versus IMWG definition of relapse mm -hmm. with intervening at both of the, it's a randomized trial. Uh, patients are treated either one or the other uh, with, uh, with a novel three drug combination to ask the question that you're asking, which is, does it make a difference to treat them earlier uh, rather than wait for them to develop IMG de you know, defined progression. The MRD is I think an even bigger question, but I don't think we have, I think if you can answer biochemical versus symptomatic yeah. relapse first, then you'll be set up to answer the MRD question. But I think this question of early versus delayed treatment for relapse biochemical, uh, probably I think uh, even if you show at the end that the survival is the same, but if you are also able to show that you reduce the incidence and severity of organ damage, we would consider that there is a true benefit for the patient. Uh, but here we're dealing with someone who was a patient who already has myeloma, has been treated for myeloma, and actually you are trying to improve, I would say, the conditions of the relapse setting which is slightly different question than, you know, taking someone with uh, high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma, not complaining of anything. And maybe the problem we are facing is that we are considering all patients are equal. And uh, the issue is, can we dissect and have a more, uh, you know, precise definition of those patients who are in need? You have even patients who have been treated with intensive uh, therapy, you know, full, like say, uh, let's call it uh, total-like therapy, and they end up with a small monoclonal component, and they live for 10, 15 years in a sort right. of an MGUS-like situation. Right. So wh wh where do you put all, all these patients are different, I think. But, you know, it's funny because I think the first part of your response is the same argument that Mari V and I make for why to intervene with high-risk smoldering. It was <laughs> identical to the response that we give. Uh, so I like the way we can say the same thing, but, but the final conclusions are different. <laughs> Correct. There, there is a question here about um, uh, the impact of immune function as a variable with age, as uh, impacting whether or not you can cure a patient. And I think that that's, it's an interesting question. I think the closest we've gotten probably to the curative curve, whether it's the, the outstanding responders that Vincent was talking about, whether it's that plateau on the La Huerta paper from, from Spain from a long time ago, or I'm sure the French have da that data as well, was without really immune-based therapy. It was really based with corticosteroids and alkylators. But do you all think that immune status or immune function may impact the ability to ultimately cure subsets of patients? That's very uh -huh. difficult. Yeah, that, that's very difficult. I mean, uh, we, we definitely know that there are uh, immune status differences with age, especially with the so-called immune uh, senescence. However, uh, I mean, when you look to treatments relying, I would say, on immune effectors, and you would imagine that, for instance, bispecific antibodies would require a few healthy or uh, effective T cells. But, you know, of course, the experience is quite limited in the literature, but I'm not aware of these bispecific uh, uh, trials 
which could show that a patient who is 75 did not respond well compared to the patient who is 55. So there are immune differences, whether they can translate into clinical meaningful differences with the treatment we use. That's another question, I think. Yeah, so I think that the, the question is not easy, but uh, right now we have uh, some experience coming uh, from immunomodulation-based therapy like Daral Index in the elderly population, resulting in uh, extremely long progression-free survival. So maybe the first question is if uh, we can consider that the elderly patient can be potentially cured or not, because... Uh, in principle, the objective for me in an elderly patient with myeloma is uh, this patient to take an overall survival comparable to the expected survival according to the age at the moment in which the disease was diagnosed. And if the patient has to receive continuous therapy with immunomodulation in order to maintain under control the disease, for me it's perfect if the tolerability is good. And this is what we are observing with, for example, Lendex plus Daratumumaba. I think that this was different in the past and, of course, in the elderly population. And definitely the immune system is not exactly the same because there is an immune senescence. And at the same time, we can take advantage of this immune impairment with all these novel immunotherapy approaches. But I think that the objective maybe is different for the elderly population. Yeah, and, and you know, I think it's it's interesting because we talk about how bad the immune system is in patients, particularly as they get more and more therapy, and that's been used as a reason why perhaps the PFS of CAR T cells are not as good in the refractory setting as I think we would have all liked to see. It's good, but it's not as good as we would have liked to see, and yet the response rates for bispecifics are really high, uh, and so. To me, that says that there's there's some there's some contraindication there that that's something they must be good enough if they're making a bi-specific work as well as they do, um, and and so um, it's not as simple as saying well there's just some level of immune dysfunction uh, because you wouldn't get a seventy percent response rate with a bi-specific in refractory myeloma if that were the case, right? Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, I think uh, I'm trying to see if there's any other questions here. For everybody to discuss. I, I thought you guys would want to respond to my siren song of MRD response. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I would like to, to discuss a bit about that because you are a bit skeptical about <laughs> the minimal result disease. But well, if I correctly understood, well, and I agree with you, MRD at a specific time point today. I think that uh, it does not uh, uh, have a lot of value because it can be positive or negative. And at the end, this is based on the bone marrow aspiration you are doing today in a specific place, and it can be different in another place. But uh, the role of uh, MRD sustained over time, from my point of view, this is relevant. And I think that we have to work on this much more together with the sensitivity level to yep. increase the sensitivity level to incorporate optimal imaging techniques and sustained MRT negativity. Do you agree with this, Sagar? I do. Yeah, so Ooh, that I agree with. <laughs> so, I, you know, what I worry about, and there's a question in here about the MASTER trial and the Manhattan trial and their, mm -hmm. uh, their design and their use of MRD. What, what, what worries me a little bit is that when you look at MRD at cycle four or you look at MRD at cycle six, 
in my mind, that is purely prognostic. It really doesn't tell you how that patient is going to do from a, can I stop or must I continue? So to me, the, the, the endpoints that are of value are one year, two year, three year. Those are the MRD sustained endpoints that I think are of value. Not saying I, reach, I achieved MRD after induction and consolidation. I don't need to give any more treatment. I'm done. Um, that to me worries me because people have always done that with CR and it was a mistake with CR and it's a mistake now with MRD, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And concerning the Manhattan and the master clinical trials are important initiatives, especially in the master study, because this is a, well, a response adaptive therapy. And we will see because the sample size are quite small and we need longer follow-up in order if those patients in which the treatment has been adapted to the MRD continued in remission and for how long. Right. And I I think here we need really to emphasize to uh, everybody and to the audience that most of the MRD uh, data we have are about correlation and correlation is not always causality. And I think uh, what the uh, Master and Manhattan trial, which are really great efforts are trying to do in a single arm approach is to use MRD to guide therapy. So as a sort of uh, uh, drive MRD driving the treatment which actually uh, we cannot make any uh, final conclusion because in order to do such conclusion, you will have to randomize this into whether you have an MRD negative, you stop treatment while you continue, or you have an MRD positivity, you continue treatment or you switch gears, et cetera. And we don't have, as far as I know, such data. Yeah. All right. There are two quick questions here. So uh, brief answers. Uh, one is about comment on the curative potential of allo transplant. I think that was designed for Dr. Moti in, in, in mind. Absolutely. <laughs> well, unfortunately, uh, uh, I don't see for the time being, uh, we're doing less and less allo transplant uh, in myeloma, maybe a few cases of plasma cell leukemia remaining. Uh, however, even when it comes, because I know, you know, the usual question is you have a young patient deletion 17P, who has a good donor, healthy, would you proceed to allo? I think the short answer is usually no, given all the available options we have in hand. However, our role is also to provide solutions, not only to patients who are being treated in the US and France and Spain or Germany or elsewhere, but also in places where maybe they don't have access to uh, treatments. And in that situation, maybe you would consider, uh, because this is, I think, one treatment option. What we all need to acknowledge is that we've done dozens of these patients, and unfortunately, all of them, or let's say 95% of them, will continue to relapse and progress after allo. So uh, it's a pity, but I think the first uh, version of allo is not the right answer. Maybe uh, we'll have second version of the software or something else later on. Okay. Maybe. Go ahead. Sorry, Marie. Oh. No, no, no. That maybe we will have the second version of the software for Allo. <laughs> right. Okay. So, uh, quick question: uh, Can you wake the immune senescence with interferon? 
Um, that's a little bit outside of my area, but I will leave it to the two of you. I know in, the, in Spain, they, you love interferon, right? Yeah, we love interferon. In fact, <laughs> we continue using I have a, a patient in my clinic that uh, he's receiving interferon for more than uh, 10 years, and there is not any more interferon in the pharmacy, but he wants <laughs> to continue receiving interferon. And, uh, well, it's uh, an immunomodulatory drug, and... Uh, and in fact, it can be effective. The main problem is the tolerability. And I think that this was one of the main reasons why interferon was abandoned. And I think that we have right now better immunomodulatory drugs than interferon. Yeah. I think you had many trials from the 90s testing interferon alpha in the maintenance setting, and some of them suggested some benefit. However, I believe there was a sort of a big meta-analysis published in 1998 or yeah in the British Journal of Hematology, showing that the benefit is only around 6%. Six really, uh, so this is really was like marginal. Uh, now, maybe it can be revisited with the pegulated, you know, formulation, which are much better uh, tolerated, but I don't believe uh, there are any ongoing trials for the time being. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to both of you. This has been a great discussion. I think there were a few questions we couldn't get to, uh, but maybe we can do them and post the responses on the uh, on the myeloma web uh, 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 on the myeloma hub uh, website uh, because there were some additional questions that were coming up. And uh, thank you again uh, to my colleagues. I've got a couple of conclusions, and then we'll we'll wrap up here. So I want to bring back this uh, RVD one thousand with new outcomes as as what I think is the benchmark. And I'm going to hit that same point that depth of response is not the same as duration of response. And that ultimately we have to, we have to put the two together and see the results as opposed to try and predict uh, the results. So I think that that's, that's really important. So cure is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, I think uh, a complicated disease like myeloma is going to have many different versions. I like uh, the age adjusted survival. Uh, I'm hopeful that we can get to something that looks like age adjusted survival uh, because that probably is a surrogate. I worry that, uh, and I remember our friend Antonio Palumbo would say this all the time, myeloma is not like acute leukemia. Myeloma is like breast cancer in that it may come back 5, 10, 15 years later, and that the model for cure may be different than it is for, for some of the acute leukemics. Um, I think we hope that early intervention with precursor conditions uh, may increase the cure rate. I think that's the, the thrust of a lot of Marivi's uh, work uh, with her current trial to do that. Uh, uh, but I think we need to see the proof in the pudding to really understand that. Um, I think MRD as a surrogate for cure is not ready for, for prime time, but sustained MRD negativity over a year or two year periods may be a surrogate, I think as, as uh, Professor Mateos was, was hinting at as well. Uh, and finally, uh, our goal should not just be to de-escalate therapy uh, because we think something else is just as good. Our goal should only be to de-escalate when we think we've done really well and we're trying to reduce toxicity. That's, that's a different situation than saying uh, something is, uh, is better than transplant. And this to me is sort of a graphical way I, I like to think of about thinking about depth of response, which to me is a function of induction. How deep is your response? And then duration, which to me is a function of consolidation and maintenance. And so I think we think that, you know, uh, a triplet or a quad induction transplant in short duration maintenance is enough. That's probably only working on the induction side of the equation, but not working on the duration side. And so I think we have to put packages of therapy together 
that give you a deep response to induction and then figure out how to maintain that for a long time without continuous therapy if we're ultimately going to going to get to curative therapy on the back end. So this is my simple graphic for, for trying to do that. Thank you for listening to the Multiple Myeloma Hub podcast. We would like to thank our sponsors, Pfizer, Sanofi, AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, GSK, Roche, Amgen, and Oncopeptides. Multiple Myeloma Hub podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support.